right, good to see you again. Amaius, if you would, take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. I realized, you know, one Sunday, Jeff isn't able to be here, Jeff Hempel, to lead the membership presentation, and I completely forgot to do our church verse during the membership presentation, so I had one job, one job, and I messed that one up. But uh, we're going to focus on God's Word together uh, right now, which I'm excited to do. So Hebrews chapter 2 is where we are. The, this morning. If you haven't been a part of Emmaus for a while, or maybe you're here as a guest, we are doing a study in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, a study that we hope will take us through next Easter, if all goes kind of as planned, and, and that's kind of the journey that, that we'll take through this book, and so we're excited that you're here to study God's Word with us. One quick update from last Sunday from the message. In the sermon last Sunday, we were talking about how God's enemies are defeated by the praise of little children. I mentioned to you that we were talking to a candidate who was possibly coming as our new preschool ministry director. I can tell you that after this last week, our personnel committee wholeheartedly, unanimously said, yeah, this is the direction that, that we need to go. So here's what I can tell you this morning. July 23rd, two Sundays from now, we will vote on this candidate. And you might be saying, hey, that'd be really great. Now tell us who it is. I can't yet, okay? So she needs this Sunday and this week to tell her leaders, her church. We just want to protect those relationships. But next Sunday, I'll be able to get all that information out to you about who the candidate is, her, her story, testimony, all of that. But good news, this is a great opportunity for our church family. For Compass Weekday Preschool, for our weekend church-based preschool, all the things that happen around here with young families— God's put a really good gift in front of our church family. And so you as Emmaus members will be able to vote on that. July 23rd, we'll get the information out to you starting late this week, into this weekend, into next week. Uh, but I wanted to give you that update that we're going to vote on July 23rd. And if you're not here on July 23rd, you'll get a vote link through my email, and you can, you can take, care, take care of that at, at that time. When we get to the end of the service today, we're going to have an opportunity to sing a final song together. Uh, I'll ask you to stand at the end, and we'll sing a song that just connects so beautifully to the scripture that we're studying. During that final song, if you're here this morning, and you need somebody to pray with you, you have questions about salvation, about being a Christian, some of the things we're going to talk about in the sermon this morning, we want to invite you to come during that final song. We want to be able to pray for you here at the front. If you say, I just can't walk down in front of a group of people, it's just not going to happen, but I need to become a Christian today, I need to be saved— when that final song is finished and people are dismissed, we always want to tell you that we stick around out here at the front, that you can respond any time to God's Spirit at work in your life. And so I pray that what we talk about this morning would be really helpful because here's the two questions we're going to get at this morning. Question number one is how do we handle the fear of death? And question number two is why did the Son of God become human? Uh, now, in putting these questions in front of you this morning, there's, there's a reason behind even talking about this up, up front. This is a good uh, example, hopefully, for how when we study Scripture, when you look at the Bible, there's often, within the verses you're reading in the Bible, there's something that just kind of hits us as humans, hits us at like kind of that felt need, this is something I'm really struggling with, really dealing with in life. And then when you read Scripture, there's all kinds of beautiful doctrine and theological teaching that's going on, Here's what happens in the Christian life, and here's what happens in churches. 
Usually we're good at one or the other of those. So you go some places and you get Bible teaching or you're reading the scripture and it is just all deep theology, doctrine, intense teaching. And you go other places and you're reading the Bible for yourself devotionally or you go to certain churches and it's all just here's how to have a better life. And we are here to tell you at Emmaus that those two are meant to go together. Like those two are meant to fit together. When you, when you see in scripture, hey, here's a question that I'm really dealing with deeply. Like here's an issue that I'm struggling with. Also in the scripture, I can tell you that there is something about Jesus and the good news of the gospel and theology that's gonna speak to that issue. And so what we want to do when we study the Bible at Emmaus, what we want you to do when you study the Bible is to read scripture and say, oh man, there's something I can connect with. Like teenagers, this is good. Like you're reading the Bible and you're like, that's a problem I struggle with. Now what's the answer to it? Oh, God put it right in there as well. <laughs> like I don't have to go looking somewhere else. It's right there as well. There's this theological thing. So what we're going to do this morning, and you're going to see this in the verses, the piece of it that hits us as humans is there's this phrase in here about being enslaved to the fear of death. I don't know what fears you're dealing with in your life. I don't know if you're dealing with the fear of death, but that's a topic that can really address what we face in this life. And then we have this question, why in fact did Jesus come? Why was Jesus born? Why did Christmas happen? Why did the Son of God take on human flesh? We're going to put those two together. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Let's look at these verses here. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting or proper that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies, that's a word for make holy, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation, we'll talk about that word in a minute, <laughs> for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray together. Father, I know that there may be people listening who in a very real powerful way are struggling with the fear of death. Or, or maybe they're not struggling with the fear of physical death, but they're just overwhelmed with fear about the future, fear of things to come that so many times we have almost no control over. And God, we have diagnoses that are given by doctors. We have fears that come up within us because of illnesses and sicknesses around us. We have fears that come that we're going to be pushed to the side because of things that happen. And God, I pray that this morning we would see why it's such good news that Jesus came, was born, died, and rose again. God, show us that this morning from your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So in 2018, the movie Free Solo was released at the Independent Telluride Film Festival, and this movie went on the following year to win the Academy Award for Best Documentary. Free Solo follows Alex Honnold, who's attempting to climb the face of El Capitan in Yosemite in California. Now, this would be amazing enough, except Alex free climbs. No ropes, no safety equipment, just his chalk bag going straight up the mountain. Uh, now, I'm going to tell you this. Spoiler alert, he doesn't fall in the documentary, okay? So, going up the mountain. Also, spoiler alert, if you have any fear of heights, be very careful watching this movie. I knew he didn't fall, and I still couldn't hardly make it through the movie. Um, so, when we visited the Grand Canyon years ago, I observed the Grand Canyon from a very wise 10 to 15 feet back, you know, from the edge, like where a normal person would view the Grand Canyon uh, from, like a little ways back. Those kind of heights just, uh, just don't do it for me. Um, you watch this documentary, and it is unbelievable watching this young guy go, go up the face of El Capitan there. Now, I read an article this last week where scientists did some brain scans, which you're like, well, if you're climbing that, you probably do need some brain scans, but they, they do some brain scans on him and find that his amygdala essentially just doesn't fire. So the part of our brain that's designed to help us make a threat response in these type of situations, when they scan the brain, that part of his brain essentially just doesn't fire because of the way that his brain works and the experiences he's had throughout his life. Here's what he said in an interview that I read this last week. Honnold says, I probably have a more nuanced relationship with death now because I've thought about it a lot more. That actually made me feel better to know that he's thinking about this. He's dealing with the fear of death. He says, I've talked about death a lot more since appearing in the documentary Free Solo, and I don't want to die, and I still have a fear of death. Now, this morning, I don't know if you plan to climb any mountains like that. I don't know what your fear is in front of you. But we do need to deal with this question of how do we handle the fear of death? What does it look like to respond to this? What is God's word saying when it deals with this topic? Here's the game plan. I want to show you this really quickly on the screen so you can get an idea. You don't have to write it down or take a picture of it or anything. But I just want to give you an idea of what we're trying to do today. So the way these verses are set up, this is kind of behind the scenes stuff. I started not to include it, but so many of you enjoy this that I just want to throw it out there so you can see it. The way these verses are set up, is they follow that famous A, B, C, D, C, B, A pattern. You know, where it's going in, in that kind of pattern, where A and A end up correlating. So 2.10 in your Bible, verse 10, correlates with verse 18. The beginning of 11 with 17, we're going to see all this as we go through. Here's what I wanted to put in front of you, though. The core of these verses that we're going to work outward from, the core of these verses are in verses 14 and 15. So let's look at those verses because it's the core, and then everything else works out in this fan pattern from, from the beginning of those verses. Okay, verses 14 and 15. Let's look at these for just a moment. Verse 14. Since therefore the children, speaking of humanity, since we have flesh and blood, Jesus himself, he also took those same things. He took flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So first key phrase there, we know someone in this story has the power of death, that's the devil. Verse 15, what happens right after it? So the devil has the fear of death, or the power of death, 
And he is able, Jesus, because he took on flesh, he is able to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 14, verse 14, the devil holds the power of death. Verse 15, we have fear of death. In the middle of that type of situation, we need a rescuer. (laughs) We need someone who will deal with this. How will Jesus deal with it? By himself dying for us. By coming and taking on flesh and dying for us, he is able to take away the devil's power of death, and he's able to set us free from the fear of death. Okay, so let's drill down just for a second on those phrases. First, the devil has the power of death. Now, we know from Job chapter 1 in the Old Testament that the devil does not have the direct power of death. Because you know from the book of Job, when the devil wants to cause trouble for Job, he has to go through the sovereignty of God. He has to go through the one who reigns over all things. And so the devil's power of death is indirect. He doesn't ultimately have power over life or death. 2 Corinthians 4 said he's the God of this world. Not capital G God, but he has spiritual power in this world because of sin and evil and brokenness and death. Jesus, in John chapter 5, is talking about the devil, and he says that he was a murderer from the beginning. And then he goes on in that same chapter to call him a liar. John 10.10, a verse that some of you might have memorized in kids' Sunday school, says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. So the work of the enemy of the devil is to lie and to bring death. Genesis chapter 3. The temptation that happens there before Eve, where the devil says, you're not going to die. You will not surely die. Well, half-truth. And kids, good, good lesson in life here. A half-truth is also called a lie. <laughs> a half-truth, telling half the truth, is the same as lying in this situation. And so the devil is using this lie to tempt Eve. Where does her sin lead? It leads straight to death. Spiritual death and physical death. Galatians, or Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. The devil in Scripture has the power of death, the power to tempt us to sin that leads to death, but also the power to use death to cause fear and control and anxiety in our lives, which leads us to the, the next phrase in verse 15, the fact that we are enslaved by the fear of death. And if you were to talk to somebody and say, Are you afraid to die? Are you afraid of death? Most of us in that moment will have some macho response of, I'm not afraid to die. But this scripture tells us that in some way, fear of death is common to humanity. Like in some way, we have all been enslaved by the fear of death. This is the point where it would be great if we were in a Sunday school setting or we were at home talking about a verse like this, this is a great discussion point because what you would do is if you were in a Sunday school class or, or leading a small group discipleship, at this point you ask the question, what does it look like to be enslaved by the fear of death? What does that look like? Um, so we can't do that in a room like this right now. I would love to just take a break and let you talk to your neighbor about it, but that always feels awkward and so we're not going to do that as well. But, uh, but it's a good time to slow down and think to yourself, think to yourself, what does it look like? What does it look like when someone is enslaved or controlled by the fear of death? How, how does that show up? 
uh, this last weekend, or this last week, I found some teenagers out in the wild, and they, I asked them about it and tried to get their feedback for kind of what does it look like to be enslaved by the, by the fear of death. And so they talked about things just about the kind of doubt that causes panic in your life or causes a lack of peace in your life where you feel this fear of death and the uncertainty that happens after this life. And it can cause the kind of panic, it can cause the kind of fear that almost just controls your life. You don't take any risk. Uh, you're, you're scared to do anything. So either it controls your life or the fear of death can cause you to want to control other people's lives. Like, I don't want you to do X because something might happen to you. And so this fear of death becomes controlling not only on how I live, but how I treat people around me because of this fear. Some people are enslaved to the fear of death by this need to just be unbelievably productive in this life. <laughs> so the YOLO, you only live once idea. So I'm going to die. I might as well live it up. Like I need to have as many experiences as I can. I need to do everything I possibly can. I need to be as productive as I can in this life because I only have one life. Without realizing it, that person would tell you, I'm not afraid of death, except how they live says they are afraid of death. They're afraid of this life ending, and so their goal in life is to find out how much they can cram into life. Some people have what my wife this last week, I, I thought this was great phrasing. She said, we were talking about this question, she said some people live as if, they, as if they have a death grip on their possessions or a death grip on this world, which is really fascinating language to have a death grip on something. I know death is coming, and I've got to hold on to what is mine. What are you in that moment? You are enslaved to the fear of death. Some people have this really stoic, I don't care. I don't care if I die. I don't care what, what happens. In that moment, we might say, you need some fear of death. Like, it would be a good thing. Like, the idea that I would be apathetic about dying, or I would not care, or I'm just going to live my life however I want. All of these things come back to, we are enslaved by the fear of death. Now, here's where it becomes Let's get back around to Hebrews 2. Here's where it becomes a lot of fun when we do Bible study. So scripture here says, I'm enslaved by the fear of death. All throughout this passage, all throughout the book of Hebrews, what's the goal for believers in Jesus? That they would be sons of God. So there are two options presented to us in scripture here. You can be a slave to fear, or you can be a son of the creator, God. You can be a slave to the fear of death, or you can be a child who is set free to live the life that God has created you to live. Both of these options are put in front of us. The question that we have to answer this morning is, how does Jesus set us free? How does Jesus set us free from the fear of death in order to live fully as the children of God? I'm glad you asked. So here we go. We're going to work our way out of this. First, number one for notes. The way he does this, we are going to call solidarity through incarnation. And you should throw something at me at this point or at your TV if you're watching, okay, at home. So uh, let me unpack this, what we mean by those words, because those are big words. If you ever show up at church and they don't explain the big words, you've got to ask. Don't, don't go home thinking everybody else knew what that word meant, but I didn't know what it meant. Like, we're going to talk about these words. Hebrews chapter 2, the beginning of verse 14, it said, Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. This is the idea that Jesus really 
completely, fully became human. In the early church, there were a lot of heresies that were going around that when Jesus came to earth, he was only kind of human or partly human. And we would say, no, based on this scripture, solidarity means I'm with you in this. I am fully a part of your team. I am in this with you. Incarnation is that famous word we use at Christmas that Jesus took on flesh, that he took on what it means to be human. He fully became human. Backtrack to uh, 1995. Little eighth grade Owen sitting around with some of his friends at, uh, at school. And one of the friends that I was with at this day said, man, what would it be like if God became human? Now, you say, why would they ask that question? Because Joan Osborne had just released one of us. What if God was one of us? And so as little eighth graders, we're sitting around trying to make sense of this song that we were probably not supposed to be listening to, but we had heard, you know, somewhere along the way on, on the radio, this idea, what if God was one of us? What if God, and then don't finish the rest of the song. It's not great theology, uh, by the way, but um, what if God was one of us? This question we can answer. We can say, what if God was one of us? He was, and he did fully become one of us through the work of Jesus. He didn't pretend to be human. He fully took on flesh and blood. You say, okay, well, what does that look like? Look at verse 11 at the beginning. We're going to balance out these portions. Look at verse 11. It says back there at the beginning of verse 11. Oh, wait, not verse, the second half of verse 11. Sorry, not 11a, 11b. Second half, half of verse 11. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And if you skip down a little bit to verse 16, verse 16, it says, surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, we don't have time to unpack all these verses, so I just want to point you back to verse 12. I just want to point you back to verse 12 because that's really all we have time to look at in depth here. But back there in verses 11 and 12, it says, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Okay, this is really cool how this works. The words that are in italics up on the screen, or they, they have different font in your Bible, those words are drawn from the Old Testament, so the author of Hebrews is drawing from the Old Testament, and he's drawing from Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22. There's a possibility that when you hear Psalm 22, some alarms start to go off in your mind just a little bit, but let me make the connection for you. When Jesus is on the cross, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what chapter he's calling out from the Bible? Psalm 22, the very beginning. So Psalm 22 is a chapter in the Old Testament of the Bible where the first half is this lament, this, this uh, deep emotion about feeling abandoned by God and going through suffering. The second half of Psalm 22 is a response of praise. The first half of Psalm 22 says, I'm in a mess and I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. The second half of Psalm 22 says there is still hope because God's in control. 
He is still reigning. He is still working. What's happening here? The author of Hebrews is drawing from the second half of Psalm 22, and he is putting these words in the mouth of Jesus. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Who's them? All believers, us. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. And he cries out, I will tell of your name, O God, to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Teenagers, I think this will be really encouraging and helpful for you in just a second. Why does this matter? The community that receives the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, the community that receives this, one thing that is happening to them is they are being ostracized, or that's kind of a weird word to use. They're, they're being pushed to the side. They're being shamed and embarrassed because they identify with Jesus. And so in their social, circer, social circles, they're not being physically killed, but they're having happened to them what our teenagers might call like uh, social death <laughs> or relational death. And so it's not that I've been killed physically, but my group has shoved me out or pushed me to the side. Maybe you've experienced this with your family. Maybe you've experienced this at work. You feel like everyone around you is ashamed of you. You feel like everyone around you finds you unworthy. They can't stand you. They've almost forgotten you. It's as if you were dead. They just pushed you to the side. And into that steps the Son of God. And he says, I am not ashamed of you. I will stand with you in the congregation. I will be beside you and we will sing together. What a beautiful picture that is. When it feels like you are being heaped on with embarrassment and shame, you're suffering social death, you're being canceled, you're being pushed to the side. Here's the son of God who comes and takes on flesh and says, I am not ashamed of you. I am with you and for you, and I will walk along with you in this. Point number two. So our first hope that we have to have freedom is the solidarity through the incarnation of Jesus. Number two is what we're going to call sanctification through sacrifice. This is the second half there of verse 14, where it says, through death, he is able to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Okay, what do we mean by sanctification? All these big theology words. What do we mean by sanctification? Look back at verse 11. Look back at the beginning of verse 11. The beginning of verse 11, the author says, He who sanctifies, he who makes you holy, speaking of God, and those who are sanctified, speaking of us, we are made holy, we all have one source. This idea that in order to make us holy, in order for us to be made holy, we needed a human to do what we could never do. We needed an answer from God. We needed what? A God-man. We needed God to take on flesh, and that's exactly what Jesus did. Look down at verse 17. This is kind of the other side of this. This is the mirror verse at the end of this. Verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If you could just make a little note in your mind on verse 17, this verse 
becomes the foundation for almost the entire rest of the book of Hebrews. We're going to do a lot of Old Testament sacrifice when we study Hebrews. We're going to look at the book of Leviticus when we study Hebrews. What the author is doing here in 2.17 is he is putting in your mind a thought that he's going to expand for chapters and chapters and chapters to come. But this idea here that he, speaking of Jesus, as our high priest has made propitiation for the sins of the people, what in the world does that mean? Oh, and I didn't give you an extra definition up there. So, if the word propitiation just makes no sense, a good substitute word that doesn't capture the whole thing, but it gets you there, is the word satisfaction. Satisfaction, and also we can add in the word substitution. Here's what we mean. Because of sin breaking into the world, and because of God's holiness, God responds in holiness and justice to sin. We stand under the wrath of God because of sin. We deserve to die. That is the reality. You, you may have heard me say before, every person on earth has two problems they can't solve on their own, sin and death. We stand under the consequences of this. What do we need? We need someone who will stand in our place to take what we deserve to be our substitute and to satisfy God's just anger and wrath against sin. Who did that for us? Jesus. We are made holy because of his sacrifice. We are set free from the penalty of death because he died for us. And friends, I don't know of a more beautiful message in the entire world. In fact, there is no more beautiful message in the entire world than that, that we are set free because of his sacrifice. He is with us. He took on flesh. He died for us. And then number three is that we have salvation through his suffering. We have salvation through his suffering. Look back at verse 10. If you look back in verse 10 of Hebrews 2, we're going to look at 10 and 18 to kind of wrap this up on the, on the bookends of this section. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, speaking of the creator, his plans to bring many sons, many children to glory. So he's going to take his children to glory. He's going to save us ultimately in the end. It is appropriate for him that he should make the founder or the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay, if you follow the language there, it's saying that God the Father had to make the Son perfect through suffering. Which should really raise some serious questions for you. Because are you saying, Owen, that Jesus was imperfect when he came? Nope, that's not what I'm saying. The word perfect in the Bible is not only a word for moral perfection. It's more often a word about something coming to completion. When you see the word perfect here, and God brings Jesus to perfection, what it means is it, he's bringing Jesus to the completion of his ministry, the completion of his purpose, which is what? To die and rise again. How is he going to make it to death and resurrection? Well, there's going to be a lot of suffering along the way. There's going to be a lot of difficulty that he's going to go through. Guess how the path in life works? It's suffering that leads to glory. 
Guess what every high school coach that yelled at you in practice said? No pain, no gain. Like, we're not getting to win. We're not going to get to the championship unless we go through suffering. Now, the coach probably yelled a lot of other bad words that were not good theology, but that was actually pretty good theology, that the path to glory leads through suffering and difficulty. Look in verse 18. So look at the same idea in verse 18. Verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, speaking of Jesus, because Jesus suffered as he went through the temptations of his life and then ultimately in the Garden of Gethsemane, right up on the edge of death, because he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, let's talk, talk very specifically about fear of death here. You could reach a point in your life where you get a diagnosis from a doctor, where you get news about something that you're facing in life, and in that moment, in a way that you never expected, your faith starts to wobble a little bit. Your faith starts to feel shaky because you think, God, this is not the timing, this is not the direction, this is not what I expected to happen in life. This, this, this path of suffering that looks like it's going to be in front of me, I didn't sign up for this. And I didn't expect it, and I didn't want it. And in a way that maybe catches you off guard, you feel like your faith is starting to wobble a little bit. You're being tempted whether or not you are going to continue to trust in God, whether you're going to continue to stay faithful. And here is what is so beautiful about this verse. This verse says, in that moment of doubt and uncertainty, there is one walking beside you who has walked the same path. And he continued to trust the Father. He continued to walk forward through that suffering. And that suffering led him to the cross and the resurrection, which is your greatest hope. And all you have to do is continue to walk with him on that path because he has gone before you and he will walk beside you and you have hope. He came to you in flesh he died for you and he will walk with you from now into all eternity that is where your hope is found that is what sets us free from the fear of death you can trust him now the follow-up question is if that's true and many of you in this room have experienced that freedom from the fear of death the question is how do free people live like if i've been set free from the fear of death how do free people live and I would just point you to your Bible, Genesis through Revelation. It's just, one, it's just one long story about this is what it looks like for free people to live. I do want to put a couple of verses in front of you. And you can talk about these later with your family or in your small group or whatever. But how do free people live? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Kids, your friends impact you more than you probably realize. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. In a chapter about the resurrection, right at the core, Paul says if you've experienced the resurrection, it's going to drive you to holiness. It's going to drive you to want to live fully for the Lord. Look at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you've been set free from the fear of death, the result of that is I want to live my life fully for the Lord. Even better, even better, 
if you've been set free from the fear of death, what it tells you is your life matters. It is not worthless. It is not in vain. When you go to work tomorrow, when you care for your kids tomorrow, when you go to school in a, a month, and sorry to remind you of that, when you go to school in a month, when you, all these things going on, the work that you do, it's not a waste. It's not in vain because you say, this is where my hope is found. I'm going to live fully for the Lord. Our final song today. Cassidy and I didn't plan this, but I was so thankful when I saw this uh, pop up. Our final song today is called Living Hope. If I could just write a title over the verses this morning, it is Living Hope. Through the death of Jesus, we have been set free from being slaves to the fear of death, and we have living hope. We have hope that sends us out into a dark, chaotic world to say, you don't have to be afraid. Jesus died for you. There is hope. During this final song, maybe you're here and you've been eaten up by the fear of death. I can tell you that I have a family member who's very close to me and their salvation experience came because of a deep fear of death. It ate them up. It caused so many problems in their life. And in the midst of that fear of death, that is what God used to turn them to faith in Jesus. You may be here this morning you have trouble sleeping, you have trouble living through life, you're just eaten up with the fear of death. And this is a reminder, I can turn back to Jesus. I know he's there, I can trust in him. If you're dealing with that fear, we'd love to pray for you and encourage you. More than anything, we want you to celebrate the living hope that we have in Christ. Let me pray for us and we're gonna stand up and sing that song. Father, thank you for these verses. Uh, your word is is so powerful and, and so incredible the way it's put together, the way the verses are shaped, the way they deal with things that every person on earth deals with, and you've come right into the middle of that and provided truth and answers. We live in a world where people are desperate for truth, they're desperate for hope, and we find that in Scripture. Father, we may have family members or friends who are struggling with fear of death, God, I pray that this morning would not add to that fear, that, that this morning would be peace and comfort and hope for those who are struggling with that. And God, I pray that you would send us out to share this good news with people around us, that when people are struggling in life, we would be able to say, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the good news of Jesus. And God, help us to celebrate and to live out that hope that you've given us through Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.